Good morning. I greet you in Jesus' name. It's good to be with you all this morning. Um, do you all remember the little WWJD slogan? Remember that? Um, I was thinking it was a few years ago, and I thought, well, it was probably 15 years ago, and then I Googled it quick, and it said, in the 90s. So I guess I'm dating myself, but some of you younger folks don't remember WWJD. That was the little slogan, what would Jesus do? And you saw bracelets with the letters on, or you saw necklaces, or bookmarks, or bumper stickers, probably. Um, all these things, what would Jesus do? It comes from the book that Charles Sheldon wrote, um, the book called Any Steps, and the subtitle was, What Would Jesus Do? He, he wrote it in, or it started in 1896. It wasn't really a started as a book. He was actually writing this story and preaching it to his congregation, uh, one story a week, I think it was. And then 1899, they actually put it into a book form and, and published it. Uh, it's become a very popular book. Um, Charles Sheldon's idea was that Christianity should have social impact, that um, Christianity that doesn't affect the world around us isn't really Christianity. And I don't know, he might have been a bit extreme in his view, but I don't know a whole lot about him himself. Um, but he, he did have a good point. Um, our Christianity should, should affect other people. I'd like to think about a, a question that's um, sort of along those lines. And today's study school lesson is a really good lead-in to, to what I want to talk about this morning. Um, what would Jesus do is an important question. But what I'd like to think about, and I think this is what, really what Charles Sheldon meant as well, is how can I be like Jesus? Um, not just a question of action, but a question of who we are. Two weeks ago, I was at, at the chapel. We had a Sunday school lesson about the Samaritan woman. And one of the things we discussed there was how Jesus met people right where they were, um, on their level, and he had a personal message for them. He somehow connected with people, didn't matter what class they were from or uh, what social status. Um, he would recognize their needs, and he would be able to connect with them and find a way to their, their heart. Now, he wasn't always successful in, in changing people, but he, he always connected with people and, and impacted them in some way. He didn't always change them positively, but it was sad. say <clears throat> So how can we be like Jesus? I certainly can't give us an exhaustive uh, study of it this morning. Uh, what I was impressed with, with as I thought about Jesus, one thing is Jesus' actions came from who he was. Um, Jesus wasn't trying to, to put on something or um, display some power or prove something to somebody. Um, his actions came from who he was. And we as humans, maybe particularly as Americans, we tend to focus on um, what we need to do. Um, we feel satisfied at the end of the day when we've gotten a lot of things done. That somehow is important. Um, and I don't want to minimize, as we, as we think about these things, about being, I don't want to minimize that there is certainly a... We, we do things as we are. Um, that makes sense. We, who we are results in action, results in, in doing the right thing. Um, 
But I think God is more focused on who we are. That's what really, really matters to Him. And that who we are then produces the action. And Jesus calls us to be. He wants to change our lives on the level of our character and our soul, not just on, just on the level of our actions. And I hope this can be somehow practical. I'm not sure if this is a 100% practical message. Um, the, what I want to call us to as we look at, at who Jesus is and what he wants us to be is the recognition that it's not something we do. Uh, it's not something that we just crank up our level of spiritual energy and suddenly we're to some level um, of holiness. That this is something that God works in us, a change of nature that, that Jesus has to do. I'd like to look at two aspects of being like Jesus. One is having the mind of Christ. First Corinthians 2.16 says, Ye, or we, depending on your translation, have the mind of Christ. And so what, what is the mind of Christ? Um, how, do we, how can we be like Christ or have his mind? And then the second thing that I want to look at is being united with, with Christ. Turn your Bibles to Philippians 2. Um, verse 5. This talks about the mind, which is what, what got me here. But I'd like to look at several things about Christ's attitude or perspective on life. It's not an exhaustive list, but it is instructive to us, I think. Philippians 2, let's read verses 5 through 8. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. I'd like to pull several things out of, out of this chapter out of these, these verses that we can learn about Christ's mind or Christ's attitude and perspective on life. Um, we got two different, we got several different types of animals this year at our place, but uh, two that I want to tell you about. Um, Alex decided he wanted some pigs, and we got some pigs. And we're starting to learn why you talk to people and say, don't be a pig. Or we say that people are hogs when they're very selfish. Pigs are incredibly selfish animals. I didn't realize how bad they were. I never had pigs before. Um, we have two troughs because we had the idea that with two pigs, you put equal amounts of stuff in the two troughs, and one would go to one and one would go to the other. But what happens is both go to one and they fight until it's all gone that one, and then both go to the other and they fight there until it's all gone. Um, I don't understand how an animal can be. So pig-headed. Um, they're amazing. We have another type of animal we got this year, and it's a very social animal, and it focuses on the needs of the whole group, and they all work together. And those are bees. They've got several hives now. And they don't look out for themselves. They look out for the good of the community. Um, there's a certain amount of individualism, I'm sure, but basically they all work together. And somehow they figure out things together and make decisions together and um, communicate among themselves, but it's all about working as a, as a group. 
Christ was unselfish. He, did, he, he was not focused on himself and his own needs. Verse 7 says that he made himself of no reputation. Um, my Spanish Bible says that he ridded him of himself, or he, he put off himself, basically. He emptied himself, as the way another translation says it, I think. Um, he was not focused on himself. He got himself out of the way. Uh, and we see different points in his life where he wrestled, like in the garden, with the, the cost of, of dying, literally, and having to give up himself and the pain that his self was going to have to go through. Uh, but he was focused on the needs of others. Part of having the perspective of Christ is uh, being unselfish, because unselfishness focuses us focuses us outward uh, to see the needs of others, to look beyond our own home and even beyond our own church, uh, beyond our own community. I had several conversations with some of my neighbors in the last, last week. It just happened to, to talk with them. It's, it's interesting what you learn about people and the problems you start to hear about that you had no idea that were going on not that far from you. And if we could, I would, I'd be curious, if we draw a circle with, with a one or two mile radius around this building, we probably have no idea of all the hurts and problems and pains and things that could be within that two mile, two mile radius. Um, unselfishness focuses on those things and on the people around us rather than ourselves. For that matter, if we draw a circle around the little group here, we probably don't have an idea of everything that everybody in here is experiencing either. Uh, we know some things, but there's probably things that, that most of us don't know. Christ was unselfish, um, not focused on his own needs, but focused on the needs of others. Also in verse 7, it says that he took upon him the form of a servant. Part of Christ's perspective on life was that of being a servant. Um, he calls us to a servant's heart. He served, he served almost constantly while, during his ministry. I thought of the story of when he healed, uh, went to heal Jairus' daughter. He was teaching, and they interrupted his call to go heal this, this uh, girl. On the way, he's interrupted, and he's healing somebody else, and then he finally gets there and... Um, of course, he died. He raised her to life again. Um, he was constantly serving, constantly being interrupted. And he served people in many different ways. He, he healed, he cared, he counseled, he taught, he washed feet, did many different things. And he healed, he served all different classes of people. Um, you see the interaction with Samaritans and Pharisees and prostitutes and tax collectors. All sorts of people. And Christ calls us to have a service part. It's part of unselfishness, the build up of unselfishness, is this idea of serving others. Paul talks about that he's a slave to all men. Uh, he called a responsibility to, to everybody to serve them. Christ, uh, in his service, was right on people's level. He got, he got right in among the common people. And he calls us to, to, to be that sort of a servant. Um, Charles Sheldon's book, What Would Jesus Do?, gave lots of practical examples of people getting their hands dirty and serving in very, very practical ways, uh, not just 
You know, there's the thing that looks important or the thing that looks attractive, but the unnoticed and the unseen ways. Christ was also humble. In verse 8, uh, it says that being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. Um, I worked with Dave Horst in Guatemala. Uh, most of you know Dave. And he is, he is a very humble man. I don't know if you know that about him. If you, if you talk to Dave, most of the time he turns the conversation back around to talking about you. And you, you rarely hear Dave um, lifting himself up or talking about himself or, or things that he has done. He's always focused on other people and a very, very humble man. I've always appreciated working with him. Christ calls us to be, be humble people. Um, but somehow, we, we have this, maybe it's just a, the, um, the human tendency, but it seems like even as Christians, we, tend to, we have this tendency to think that we have things figured out and not be super humble about things. Um, I was impressed in a Sunday school lesson today when we were talking about the Pharisees, how tied up they were in what they believed to be right. Um, Christ calls us to humility. Christ was a, a poor Galilean carpenter. He was born in a stable to peasants. He didn't have many things, and he didn't focus on himself. He kept pointing people to his father. Yeah, he, was a, he was a very humble man, even though he was the Lord of, Lord of the earth, Lord of everything. Um, he calls us to be humble, to recognize that we are nothing, and that, that we need him. I think humility goes a long way in building relationships with people, um, especially with people that don't see things the same way we do. We can be humble and, and gentle with them. They're much quicker to, to respond to us, to listen to us, and to um, connect with us. I, I work for Liberty and Gail and Amy. Um, as well. And one of the things that I, I like Liberty and appreciate it, there's a lot of good people that work there. But one thing Liberty does not tend to be is humble. Um, it tends to be fairly um, interested in letting everybody know about the good things that we're doing. And there are some certainly very good things that they're doing, but I think that tends to be a bit of a turnoff to some people. I find it just a little uh, a bit of a turnoff myself. And we don't want to be that way with people. Uh, we want to be people that are humble enough, that we're approachable, humble enough to be um, able to listen to other people. The final thing I want to pull out of here is that Christ was obedient. Um, in verse 8, he humbled himself and he became obedient unto death. Um, Jesus was obedient to the very extreme. And his desire for us is to place in us an obedient heart. Not that we obey out of having to, or that it's the right thing to do, but that we have a heart that desires to do obedience. Uh, to give us the heart of flesh to replace the stony heart. 
thinking about a story about obedience as an illustration. Suppose, um, I know I've told a few stories from Otto Tending before, but he, a, he told of uh, two men in a particular town that he would go to and teach. Uh, there were some speakers in this town, some older men that wanted to, wanted to hear the gospel. And so Otto would go and he would try to teach, try to preach. And there were two men in the town that were somehow in the chief structure there. And um, they would come in and they would just make rackets. Um, there was the one time when one of them came through beating a huge drum the whole time, just trying to disrupt his teaching. Uh, or they would come through and they'd swing their machete at him and they'd, they'd pluck on their bowstrings and just try to let him know that he wasn't wanted and try to run him out. One time, Otto had his young son there, and he scared his son silly because he was sure that his son was sure that these men were going to kill his dad, kill Otto. Well, these two men, um, there was a war between two tribes, a battle between two tribes, and both of them were injured, and quite badly injured. Uh, one of them had an arrow through his neck. Interestingly enough, he was the one that liked to play around with his bow, and the guy that liked him shitty ended up with a huge cut across his back. From shoulder to shoulder, it sounded like that somebody had given him a, a good chop of machete and opened it up. And Otto's first thought was, God is judging these men. But then he felt like he needed to go. They were some distance away by boat. He felt like he needed to go back and try to do something for these guys. Um, and so he argued with God a while and finally felt like he needed to obey and go. And he went. And um, tried to do what he could. He really wasn't sure if it was going to make any difference, but tried to patch these guys up and then they went back home. And they survived. They, they made it through. And they ended up having to go to prison for a number of years uh, because of this battle. The government was cracking down on the tribal warfare and didn't want this happening. And they took these two men to prison. They were in prison for about, or in work camp for about four years, I think it was, and then came back. And when they came back, they were so grateful to Otto for saving their lives. And they, they said, look, you come back to our village. We're going to make sure nobody bothers you. We're going to give you freedom to work. Uh, we'll, we'll build whatever you need to build. We'll give you the, the freedom to have a teacher here for a school, whatever you want to do. Um, and they, they asked him, they said, Otto, why did you come? He said, I did not want to come. He said, I, I, I wanted to stay home that night. I didn't want to come help you. But he, he said, it's kind of funny. He said, I, this, this place is so bad. I've got to have Jesus. I can't survive without Jesus here. So I had to obey and, and come and help you because I couldn't go against what Jesus wanted me to do. And his, his obedience is what eventually paved the way for him to be able to move there or be able to work there. And then, strangely, several years later, the government moved all the tribes around and they all ended up in a pile at this one place, uh, the very place where he had, he had helped his men. And it opened the door for him to be able to, to work there. God calls us to be obedient. Christ, Christ is obedient. He calls us to, to be obedient as well. And... To, to be of an obedient character, to have a heart that, that desires to obey, that, that loves to obey Him. 
obedient out of a love for God. So, um, four things that, we, that I wanted to notice from these from these verses of Philippians, and I want to jump to another another passage. Christ was unselfish and calls us to unselfishness. He was a servant and calls us to be a servant. He was humble and calls us to humility. And he calls us to be obedient as he was. Now, uh, turn to John 15. Um, I'd like to read verses 1 through 7 here. <coughs> John chapter 15, verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now are you clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. No more can ye, except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. Without me, ye can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch, and is withered. And men gather them, and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. Now let's get down to read verse 11. These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. So we talked about having Christ's attitude, his, his perspective on life. And now I'd like to think about having Christ in us. Um, I, I've read this chapter many, many times. Probably my favorite chapter of the Bible. I, I'm not very good at figuring out which things are my favorites, but this one's pretty high on my list. I've preached from it different times, but this time when I was reading over it, the thing that really impressed me and I want us to think about today is uh, in verse 4, it says, Abide in me, and I in you. That was the part that impressed me, the I in me part. I think I tend to look at this chapter and think about how I should be abiding in Christ. I want to think this morning about how Christ should be abiding in us. Um, but also in, in verse 5, it says basically the same thing. Uh, he that abideth in me, and I in him. Um, Christ's Spirit in us. Now think about three different things here. Um, first of all, Christ's Spirit in us. The three different things that are supposed to be in us from this, from these uh, verses. Christ's Spirit should be in us. Uh, where we live in Guatemala, there was a there was oil wells northwest of us, um, and they were the best producing wells in Guatemala. There were several different places for the wells, and I don't think best producing means they were. You know, really that great, but it was the best. They were good enough that a company from France was extracting the oil. Uh, they've, they've been working at it for quite a while. There's been a number of different companies that had owned these wells. Um, but there was, a, there was a pipeline from these wells <clears throat> that ran uh, north of us across under the river and then started to swing south, eventually intersected with the road and followed the road. Um, down to a town called La where I think they had a crude refinery there. Uh, maybe it made some sort of crude diesel and asphalt. But then the majority of the oil continued on, the pipeline went all the way to the coast. I think they loaded in the tankers 
with um, handkerchiefs there. Um, the job of this pipeline was to carry crude out. Uh, the fuel that went into the, into the oil wells was all trucked in, and these trucks hauling diesel and gas in on a daily basis, truckloads of fuel for all the different pumps at wells and all the equipment they had up there. It was like a, it was like a little city almost at the wells. Now, the job of the pipeline was simply to carry this crude oil out. And I heard years before, they used to just truck it out, and there were just the caravans of trucks pulling, hauling oil out. But now they built a pipeline, and it, all it did was, was um, carry the crude out to, out to the ocean. That's really the secret that Christ is talking about here uh, to fruit bearing. We're just a pipeline. We're just connected to Him as a source, and He flows through us. Um, his spirit living in us is what does the work. Um, the real key to being like Jesus is just being one with Jesus. And we see so many examples in, in Scripture of it. Peter on the day of Pentecost was a bravery that he shouldn't have 45 days before or whatever it was, right before the, um, um, right before the crucifixion. Um, Peter was bold on the day of Pentecost. He was filled with the Spirit. And he, he preached a sermon that was life-changing for many. Um, the disciples, people noticed that they had been with Jesus. And the reason they noticed they'd been with Jesus is because they were like Jesus now. Um, Jesus had rubbed off of them. Really, Jesus was living in them, and that was making all the difference. Christ's Spirit in us um, gives us the power to be like Jesus. Change us to be like him. So here in, this, in, in verse 5, he calls us to have his spirit in him. He wants to live in us. Second thing that I, that I want to see out of these is in verse 7. is that if you abide in me and my words abide in you. Um, he desires to have his word inside us, remaining in us. I sold Bibles in the dining hall when we lived in Guatemala. Um, had a little Christian literature stand. But the majority of the things, most people, what they really wanted was a Bible. I would occasionally sell some storybooks and other things, but mainly it was Bible. Um, partly because people didn't have that much money, and so when they did get enough money to buy something, and they were they were religious, they would want to buy the Bible first off. And Bibles didn't last for so long, books didn't last for so long in humidity, so there was a certain amount of turnover. Even you know, if you took care of a Bible very carefully, it, it wouldn't last for so many years. But there's also another factor as to why people wanted Bibles. I remember one time there was a friend of mine who was sort of a pastor or an evangelist or something, and he and I were chatting at my stand, and somebody came up and he recommended they really should buy a Bible for, for protection. Um, they, had, they were a very superstitious people in some ways. And they would even put a Bible in a hammock with a baby because that would keep the baby safe. Um, it would protect them from, from basically evil spirits. They wouldn't say exactly those words, but that was the idea. That is not the way God's Word should be handled. It's not the purpose of God's Word. Um, in contrast to that, there's, a, there's another, uh, there's a brother, Christian brother, Vitam uh, de la Rosa is married to Howard Bean's daughter, uh, Karen. 
he's a minister in the city in, in Guatemala. He said, I remember one time when he came up to um, have a revival meeting in our area, and we were going around visiting. He said, we need to make sure that we always share the word when we're visiting people, because that's what has power. They need to for sure hear some of the words. Um, that's what Christ. That's what Christ wants. His word dwelling in us, and that word being powerful as we share it with other people. Um, his word is powerful, and his teachings are alive and ongoing. It's not a single single time we expose ourselves to it, and that's adequate. And certainly not just being close to it, um, having it sitting in our hammock, and it does something for us. Christ wants His Word to dwell in us. And, you know, His Word is the anchor for us. We're so fortunate to have something that's written down that we can go back to over and over again and see truth that can live in our hearts and can be applied to so many parts of our lives and continue to impact us and change us. Um, we have that anchor of His Word. And the final thing I want to notice, which I sort of noticed at the last minute, when I was studying, in verse 11, um, that my joy might remain in you. Christ talks about himself in us. He talks about his word in us, and then about his joy in us. We were at a birthday party for one of our neighbor's daughters yesterday. She was four years old. And she was ecstatic with her gifts. We laughed and laughed at her because she would pull out a gift and just exclaim and exclaim. And then she would pull out another gift and exclaim and exclaim. But I, I thought, and even said, isn't it a shame that we somehow lose our joy over the little thing? And we sort of become jaded and we, you know, well, that really wasn't that big a thing. And, you know, we, we can kind of become that way about about Christianity. We sort of become jaded. We, we're, we're used to it. It's just the way it is. And it's not something that we're so joyful about. Um, but Christ gives joy, and the Christian life should be anything but drudgery and forced obedience, right? Um, and part of the problem, you recognize your children, as they grow up um, and become accustomed to things, they, they, or we, as adults, we stop, to we stop appreciating how uh, special something is because it has become commonplace. And that's part of what happens with us with, with, um, with Christ. Uh, we become accustomed. And so we don't realize, we don't recognize again how special it is. Um, we need to be reminded that salvation is a big deal. Uh, it, it, a secure future is a big deal. And realizing that I don't have to do it is a big deal, that, that God's done it. Uh, that Christ wants to place his joy in us. So Christ's spirit in us, his word in us, and his joy in us. One of my boys asked yesterday, I was trying to study and getting distracted. Um, he asked me how marbles are made. And so I love information, so I, I get distracted about information easily. So I, I looked it up online. I was like, how in the world are marbles made? And obviously they're glass, but what is the process? 
And there's several different ways that marbles are made. Um, one way is they form some sort of a rod and snip it off with special scissors and then form it into a ball. There's um, some sort of screw mechanism that they'll drip molten glass down into and it'll like roll them around. But what, I, what, I, what, what interested me and what I wanted to explain to you all this morning is they, they said in this little article that there's two types of marbles and it has to do with the cost of, of making them and the cost of the glass that goes into them. Transparent glass is much cheaper than colored glass, um, or somewhat cheaper, not enough that it makes a difference in the production of them. And you, you guys may have trouble seeing this. This is, I think what they would call more like a cat's eye marble, one that has something actually inside it that you can, you look in through, through the transparent outside, you can see the colors down inside the glass. And the way they make these is they have little rods of colored glass that then they wrap or work inside the transparent glass. And when I started thinking about it, I thought, this is such a good illustration of, of us as Christians that these higher cost marbles, you know, the exterior is sort of like us. The interior, the colored part, is like Christ. And no matter what happens to the exterior of this marble, because it's transparent, you're still going to see through to the, to the color on the inside. And no matter how hard we get banged around, Christ is just still shining through us. In contrast, this one is just going to have a harder time seeing because it's so much smaller. didn't have a large one. This one's just one solid color, a black marble. What they say, though, is that the way they make these things, to make them inexpensive, is it has transparent glass, normal glass inside, and then they roll it in the colored glass on the outside. It's an easier process because you don't have to try to work the color down inside the, inside the transparent. But these have all the prettiness on the outside. And you nick this thing or crack this thing or chip it or whatever, you're going to start realizing that inside there's nothing beautiful at all. It's just normal glass. And that impresses me thinking about my, myself, about ourselves. Christ calls us to be and not just to do. This person, the marble that's pretty on the outside, um, really hasn't, doesn't have any substance inside. Whereas the one that's colored on the inside, no matter what happens to the outside, the color still remains. Um, that's a little straight of sort of makes sense. Um, Christ calls us to be, to be like him. Let's have a pleasant song.